Welcome to episode three of the four-part Ken Thomas series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. In episode two, we heard about Ken's training and what it was like to fly the almighty P-47 Thunderbolt. In this episode, Ken talks about his odyssey traveling to the China-Burma-India theater and what typical missions were like for him during the war. Okay, um, we're going to roll on to the next clip. This was, this was really awesome. Um, we're going to talk more about what the actual mission to reinforce Nick's story about ground support is. But first, we're going to get him into the CBI, into the China-Burma-India theater. And this next clip uh, talks about him being prepared for that. And they loaded us on a train, and we headed south, still with our winter clothing. And I wondered where in the world we'd go south with winter clothing, but we finally got to Miami Beach. They checked us in a hotel down there, and we turned in our winter uniforms and got some summer uniforms and a whole started round of tropical shots. We finally got that round completed, and they loaded us on a C-46, and we started jungle hopping over northern South America. And when we finally got to Natal, Brazil, they parked a, P- a C-47s and, or C-46s and 7s and gave us the B-24. We still didn't know where we were going. We'd taken tropical shots, had summer clothing, and were joined there by a USO tour, which included Jinx Falkenberg, Pat O'Brien, and three starlets, whose names I don't even remember. Just and windy. they first words, oh, you guys are going to CBI too. <laughs> We didn't know, well, that's where we're going, so now we know who's <laughs> Loose lips sink ships. So they're not supposed to know where they're going. In the USO, the USO which is the uh, entertainment volunteer organization. Which is still history. around today. Yeah. And I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, they are uh, like, oh, yeah, we're going here. <laughs> and they're like, okay, I guess that's where we're going. So the one of the people that he mentioned is uh, Jinx Falkenberg who was a famous starlet uh, back in the late 30s, early 40s. And if you look up pictures of her online, she is ridiculously, stunningly beautiful. She would marry a guy named uh, uh, Tex McCreary, uh, her publicist for a while. And they would go on to invent, to be the first to invent the genre of talk radio. And then talk, and then the same sort of thing on, t- on television. So when you listen today to various programs where talk radio, you got people talking about things that were going on. Prior, radio was used primarily for like news and music, right? And maybe to play like a show where, you know, people like The Shadow and all that. But they were the first ones where their personalities and their discussion would carry the day, and it ch- translated to radio. So he was with some pretty, pretty heavy hitters. Uh, a lot of the things I read about, all the all the various theaters, the USO played a prominent role, and we're talking about the China Burma India theater, which I'm going to address a bit more as being one of the lesser well known ones, and yet they could get people like that. So when you guys, you guys both deployed overseas, if you could just kind of refresh for the audience where you're deployed again, and did you have any sort of USO things? Nick, we'll start with you. Yeah, so uh, I've gone overseas, you know, 
again, another, I hate to keep plugging the guard here, but another beautiful thing about the guard is you still have the ability to travel, but, but it's not travel in the sense that active duty, like you'd think you're going all the time, right? Um, you know, my first trip overseas was uh, to Germany for about two weeks. Uh, the fun story there is, uh, you know, they had asked all of us, hey, we have a refueler, we're going to fly up there, and we have a small jet uh, that was, uh, believe it or not, the first lady, Michelle Obama's jet at the time. And oh. so uh, those two airframes came in to pick us up in Idaho, and they said, who wants to throw bags, right? Well, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I thought the, the nice jet was for the, the upper echelon, right? You know, that we're going to fly on that. And I said, oh, I'll throw bags, right? And see where this story goes. All of us throw, throw bags. bags. What is that? Basically, you know, the big green military bags that you ever see oh, on the news yeah. that we take with yeah. us yeah. overseas, throwing those bags basically into the cargo hold so we could load everyone on the aircraft. Well, okay, gotcha. a small volunteer group of us threw the bags on the on the plane. They got it all loaded up, and they said, everyone that threw bags today gets to fly on that Learjet all the way to Germany, right? And that was the first trip. Obviously, we flew home on the cold uh, refueler. It said, dress warm. Uh, there's no heat on board, and they weren't kidding. I mean, I was dressed, uh, you know, hand to foot, and I still froze to death. Mm. Um, but I'll just quickly jump into going overseas, right? It was something called, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, John, operational risk management. And, and by that, I mean uh, kind of what... Um, what he was saying on the clip was, hey, the adversaries can't know where we're going, when we're going, and who we're going with, right? And so um, a lot of us travel. Operational traveled, security. Operational yeah. security. Yeah. Thank you. Um, a lot of us went onesie twosie, right? Uh, so I traveled with another person from Idaho. We were in plain clothes. We had our bags with us. You'd have no idea that we were headed overseas. Uh, and then you get to a certain stop point on the East Coast, and then uh, it may be two days from that point when you stop. It may be two weeks. You don't really know um, because what you do is you end up having folks overseas that may um, accidentally leak to a spouse or a loved one what time they're coming back or, or how long they're going to be gone. And then the U.S. has to hold back those flights, right? Mm. Uh, because we just can't risk uh, anyone either eavesdropping or the adversary knowing what we're doing. And at that point, it was just a commercial airliner from the East Coast to the the next final destination, which for me was Qatar, LUD. Well, that gives me great comfort to know that we're thinking about stuff like this and doing that. That's awesome. I mean, was it the same for you when you deployed? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, <coughs> it's interesting to me, too, sometimes when we, we start and talk about big movements like this, that, yes, we know that we're probably going to, we're going to have individuals that are going to be in places like Afghanistan. We even know that they're going to be at airfields like Bagram, but we don't know that the 138th fighter wing is sending people there. Mm. Really, we don't want to say that until we get home for, for a multitude of reasons. You know, unfortunately, you know, the military exists because there are bad people out there. Yeah. And so when we start, stop talking or start talking about OPSEC, we think, well, what's the worst case scenario? What, why is it so bad that we might know that, you know, we're going to take however many F-16s from the 138th fighter wing and we're going to go to Bagram. Well, the reason why that's so tight lipped is, you know, my wife lives at home when I'm gone for three months. I don't want the world knowing that, uh, that, you know, Oh, by the way, you know, he's 2000 miles away or worse yet. We don't want them to know that, Hey, by the way, you know, these airplanes are leaving on this day at this time. Well, that'd be a great opportunity to, for a sabotage, you know, if we had sure. another in, yeah. inside threat yeah. to, to take a pot shot at the American, and it would completely kill morale, right? Because mm. now we're trying to go do the J-O-B and we're targeted right here at our, in, our, in our homeland. Right. So. Wow. Okay. Well, that's why we keep that so tight-lipped. Wait, so, oh, go sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to circle back on USO mm -hmm. stuff. So did you guys get to experience any USO shows? 
I never experienced USO shows, but I definitely took advantage of uh, the free stuff that USO provides. And I'm, oh, sure, yeah. I'm sure Nick can attest to this as well. It's like, in fact, the last time I used USO stuff was in Aludeed. Uh, there'll be like care packages <laughs> of care packages of boxes of stuff that the USO provides, and it's got everything from toiletries to candy to beef jerky. Oh, cool! Uh, and the USO does okay. a really good job to it's provide cool. that kind of stuff. Ah, huh, that's awesome. Okay, so in in your role, Nick, do you facilitate any of that? No. Uh, well, I, actually, maybe you'd probably say yeah. So uh, where we were in regards to accountability, where uh, what John was talking about for Allied Air Base, where he was uh, personnel in that career field of human resource management, we're that first stop, right? So we're where the warfighter kind of comes in, they check in, they drop their bags, uh, we tell them what they can and can't have in the country. Uh, some things are humorous, some things are not. Um, we tell them, you know, they have to drop their tobacco, they can't have you know certain types of meat uh, in their uh, uh, carry-ons, they have to. Basically, we have to culturally prepare them yep. for life in that country. Um, but there, we that's where most of the USO sends their care packages, right? And so I don't know if, John, if you went through as a transient. I did, uh, transient. Okay, so meaning he came through Aludeed for a split second, maybe a day or two, maybe a couple hours, and then he was off to his next location. But we did have those packages ready for, for, the, for the guys and gals as they were coming through. Fantastic. All right. Well, on this next clip, uh, he continues his journey, and it's a long and circuitous one to the China Burma India theater. They fly all over God's creation, and uh, he has a moment that's a little frightening uh, en route. So go ahead and kick this one. And that was an interesting trip too. The uh, the most interesting part of it was in the middle of the night. I was awakened by strong gasoline fumes. And I look out in the darkness, I could see our far right prop on that B-24 was feathered. And gasoline fumes are strong, I couldn't sleep. And I thought, we must be in trouble. Maybe I ought to wake everybody up. And then I looked down, all I could see was the, the fluorescence from those white caps that had rocked in the ocean. Several, you know, probably a mile, mile and a half below us. And I thought, well, what would we do if I woke them up? So I just let that pass, try and go back to sleep. Next thing I notice is another engine shutting down. I looked, and it was the other right-hand engine. Now, I hadn't flown four-engine planes, but I knew that if you had two on one side that were bad, you had a problem of some sort. But he's revving up these two left engines full forward, and we're still doing pretty good. And after a while, I see the agents fanning and restarting everything else. I was the only guy that observed that. Everybody else sound asleep, snoring, you know, enjoying the trip. And when we finally landed at Ascension Island, I cornered the old pilot and I said, you got to tell me, why do you shut down two engines on one side over the Atlantic Ocean? Oh, we do it all the time. I was transferring fuel out of the bomb bay into those wing tanks, and that fuel line goes right behind that exhaust ring of those two engines. You gotta shut it down. <laughs> to him, it's just part of his day's work, you know. But. Well, the sad thing is, is the reason he was concerned about it is because, I mean, the age of aviation was still relatively new at that point. And there was a lot it's of people. Fairly high risk still. Very yeah. high. People died in training and transportation accidents all the time. And we take yeah. for granted nowadays how safe, you know, air travel is relative to this would have been, for a little timeline, this would have been uh, 
uh, early to mid-1944 that he was making into the CBI theater. And he was going this huge route down south and through Brazil and across the Atlantic Ocean and then up through to New Delhi and all that. But, I mean, when you guys uh, flew into your respective theaters of operations, I mean, yeah, I, I presume it wasn't as janky as this. You guys probably had a little better experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 interesting too to me just hearing talk about the B twenty four. Students of history will note that the from Hollywood, the unbroken story was a B twenty four in which they lost two engines. Which, ah, so it's kind of interesting, oh. but but uh, and that's huh. that's why the aircraft had a ditch. But hmm. when we talk about like my personal experience flying into uh, Afghanistan, I've done it both on a C seventeen and also in an F sixteen. Uh, both, but, uh, on the C-17 about as sporty as we get is it's nighttime and they do a combat descent because they're worried about what they call IDF or indirect fires. So what is a combat uh, descent? Uh, combat descent is just a fairly steep approach. Oh. Uh, it might make the average person a little sick, but, uh, <laughs> it's not too bad. So we would have that and you'd, you'd fly into a toboggan field and it's basically just a steep spiral down to the field. Nothing too crazy. What? Sounds crazy to me that flies southwest, but I mean, for you guys, I guess it's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, bad. isn't that also, I, I, isn't that what they do when they would go into like a lot of these, uh, you know, like like in Iraq and like sure. Pogrom and yeah, stuff like absolutely. that? Yep. I, I remember like uh, hearing about like when the president would have to travel over there, sure. they'd have to do that sort of thing coming yeah. in and out real steep and everything to just avoid any potential problems yeah, you know, absolutely. From, from the bad guys and yeah, stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then the other thing I was wanting to make a note of here you know, you wonder why such a long circuitous route to yeah. get over there. You're like, well, can't they just fly across the ocean and, and everything? But think about where the theater of war is. You know, they can't really go west over the Pacific because of the Japanese. And it's a hell of a long way. And it's a hell of a long way. Yeah. Yeah. And you go east over towards Europe. Uh, well, this time Africa wasn't an issue anymore, you know, but the Mediterranean was still contested and the Suez Canal would have been kind of a cluster and the airspace was still contested. So they went down to South America, which was neutral and they came across and then they went up, up, you know, north from there and everything. And that's why it took so long. Like what a crazy route to take. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I was like, man, they're on some sort of world tour. And just a reminder to our listeners, a lot of these guys uh, from the great depression, they didn't fly, they didn't travel much. I mean, this would have been ridiculously crazy exotic yeah. to be able to travel all around the world and see these things on these aircraft that they generally wouldn't have seen on a day-to-day basis because these were brand new models. These were the most advanced designs in the world at the time. And then on top of that, he ends up landing, and we're going to get that to the next clip, in another exotic location, which is in Burma. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, mean, I was just going to say, you know, piggybacking on what you said about you know, these guys growing up in the Great Depression and everything, I think that's a large reason why they remember, like you said, the route that they took. In great excruciating detail. Yeah. Like, I can't tell you the route I took to get here from Denver, right? Because I just don't care. I (laughs) travel a lot. sleep for half of it, right? Right, and I was sleeping. I didn't have enough monster. And these guys can tell you everything about what happened 80-plus years ago in a very esoteric detail because it burned so hot. So... We're talking about, you know, exoticness. We're going to go into now the actual theater of operation. Finally got to uh, Accra, West Africa. Got a B-24 and got back in twin engine planes. And they got us across the African continent, across part of Asia to Moran, India. 
which was a uh, one of the northernmost colonies, and we were assigned to the 33rd Fighter Group for orientation, they called it, and I flew only three missions with them, and within uh, a month, I was transferred across the mountain into a little strip, Xinguiang, Burma, which was in the most northern province of Burma, and uh, joined the 80th Fighter Group, and at that time, only the 88th Squadron was at that field, and uh, I got thorough, thorough orientation, and uh, started the missions there, and within a few months, we moved forward to get closer to the battle lines to uh, strip the Japanese had built at Michino, Burma. And uh, I flew the remaining... Oh, a little bit of a cutoff there. Yeah, that's all right, but he's in Burma now. What, why is he in Burma? China, Burma, India theater. Well, in 1931, the Japanese uh, decided they wanted Manchuria. They were still a little upset about the uh, lack of what they received from the Versailles Treaty being on the Allies' side in World War I. And they became uh, militarized uh, culturally uh, and politically uh, uh, during the Great Depression to help overcome that in many ways that the fascists took over democratic free societies in Italy and Germany during the Depression that occurred worldwide in the 30s. And they needed resources. Japanese is on an island, and they don't have a lot of those. So they said, well, we have steel, we have coal, we have timber in Manchuria right across from us from a very weakened Chinese state. All we need to do <clears throat> is get the Koreans, which was a unified peninsula at the time that was under an emperor, to allow us to march our army through Korea to do this. Well, when they went to the Koreans to ask for that, the Koreans like, no, we're not going to let you do that because then we'll be at war with the Chinese. And Japs like, eh, okay. And in typical Japanese fashion at this time, in this period of history, they just attacked North Korea. Not North and South Korea, sorry. There was no North or South Korea. They just attacked Korea. And they took over the Korean Peninsula and then marched into Manchuria and took over that. And to this day, so history has consequences, to this day, the Chinese and the Koreans have really strained relations with the Japanese because the Japanese didn't just take over Korea and Manchuria. They did it in a very brutal fashion. And they were not the sort of occupiers that engendered any sort of love for the Japanese. So that was 1931. In 1937, the Japanese created a false flag incident, uh, which is when you make up something that another side did to give you justification to attack them, which is what Nazi Germany did to Poland in World War II, and we probably are seeing right now to this day. For some reason, what's old is new again. And they, this false flag was, was along a bridge uh, near Beijing, and it gave the Japanese cause to invade China. So they invaded China. The Japanese uh, conquered all of the seaports, and the only place where the Allies could support the Chinese, which was important because the Chinese were holding down a couple of million Japanese soldiers. It's a big country. It's like attacking the United States, right? And even though the Chinese at the time were technologically backwards, there was a lot of them, you know, and they were willing to fight. So the only place that we could supply them was the Burma Road because you couldn't go to a seaport. You couldn't go to the north. To the west was the Mongolian Desert. To the south, you had this road that went through the country of Burma, which is was just recently um, became uh, an independent state. It was a British colony for a long time, and so there's a lot of resentment against the British there. You're going to hear about that later. Well, the Japanese realized that they had to shut this road down. So in 1942, when the Japanese did this blitzkrieg across the Pacific, which included Pearl Harbor and the Philippines and all these places, they went right up into Burma, shut off the road, and just sat there. 
So what we're seeing is a couple of things. One, there's a 10th Air Force, and we talked about that with the Edward Patterson podcast. Please listen and subscribe to our podcast if you get a chance. And this uh, this talked about the uh, 10th Air Force being a supply wing to ferry supplies via air from places like India and Burma, because India was still under British control, into China. Well, his fighter group, the 80th Fighter Group, which is what he said he just joined, consisted of four squadrons, the 88th, the 89th, and 90th, and another one that I can't remember. He was part of the 88th Fighter Squadron, and this group had two missions. One was to defend these cargo planes that were trying to provide supply and aid over the hump, and the other was to support a counterattack by the Allies to push the Japanese away from those areas that they controlled so we could reopen the Burma Road. And just uh, a couple of things about the uh, 80th um, uh, Air Force, not the 80th Air Force, I'm sorry, the 80th Fighter Group, and then the 88th Squadron, which was a part of this fighter group, um, is they initially were supplied uh, P-40 Warhawks, which were seen as um, they were legendary uh, early in the theater because we had American volunteers flying these. They painted the shark's teeth. Flying tigers. Yeah, flying tigers, right? And they were really well-known aircraft at the time. That's yes. exactly it. Yep. And in fact, in fact <clears throat> when the war started, Chenault got promoted to a general and was actually running the Air Force on the side in China. For Chiang Kai-shek. For Chiang Kai-shek, mm. yes, to help keep pressure on the Japanese. So where uh, Ken Thomas is, he's on the other side of the mountains. He's on the Burma side, not the China side. And his job is to try to, to keep the supplies going and keep pressure on the Japanese. Yes, Ryan. So just for anyone listening, Burma today is Myanmar. That's what it's called today. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've probably seen, if you've seen any pictures of the China-Burma-India theater, probably the number one picture that's going to stick in your mind is a picture of the road <laughs> that goes up over the mountains there. It looks, it has, I don't know how many switchbacks, but it is just nothing but a little, it, it's ridiculously steep. And you talk about a treacherous road to be on. That was it. That was the lifeline. That was the Burma road. That's why it was important. Because it was a singular way to get things across in trucks before we had to airlift them because of the Japanese taking over. Absolutely. And for a more detailed account of that airlift, we, you know, we recommend that you listen to our Ed Patterson series. It's just two or three series ago. Yep. And it really focuses on this Hercules. It, it basically was the largest airlift in human history at that time. What they did was amazing. Yep. Um, and so he's in theater now. Um, He's going to talk a little bit about in, being introduced into theater in his next clip, and then I'd like to ask uh, some questions from our guests about that as well. But before we proceed, do we have any comments from uh, Nick or John? Yeah, one quick note. Uh, yeah. I just realized that I feel like an awful uh, student of history right now, but uh, during my training, I was a member of the 80th Flying, uh, flying Training Wing and Group yeah. and a member of the 88th fighter squadron, fighter training squadron, which is also known as IFF, and it's the Lucky Devils. So I flew with the Lucky Devils oh, for about six wow. weeks. Wow. That's amazing because have, in my wow. research, I saw that they still exist today they and do. that they're, they're, for, they're for training. Yeah, Shepard Air Force Base. So you were part of this storied history wow. from the CBI. Yeah, yeah it's, it's great that we do this in the Air Force where we, we will retire or deactivate a squadron or we may bring them back. Yeah. You know? So the, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was a Lucky cosmic, Devil. Cosmic, cosmic. Totally. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah. And, there, and there's something else that I forgot to add. 
that, so I'm glad that you kind of paused for a second. Um, the the name of the 88 Squadron when they were in Burma in 44, switching to P-47s from the P-40, were they called Angels from Hell? Their sister squadron called themselves the Hell's Angels. And in 1949, you had all these restless rebellious GIs in California looking for a name for their motorcycle gang because they wanted that high from being a pilot and they called themselves the Hells Angels in tribute to the fighter squadron that the the early, um, uh, the people who started the, that, that motorcycle group were a part of. Yeah, that's the, crazy. the 90th is still yeah. around too. I wasn't a part of the 90th ever. They were the boxing bears, but yeah, they were around. Uh, they're at Shepherd as well. So the 88th, the 89th, and the 90th are all all there. And I think the 89th today is known as the Banshees, uh, and then the 88th is the the Lucky Devils. And that's exactly it because um, the actual 80th fighter group they were called the Burma Banshees, mm-hmm. and then that particular fighter squadron when that moved to a training one adopted right. that. Yeah. Oh, this is wow, so cool. Wow, that's fantastic. All right. <laughs> okay, Nick, do you have anything that you want to add to this? Good. Okay, so we're going to move into landing the theater and get introduced, and then we can have in our chat about some things. What, what information you received? Oh, uh, number one, that it was a British colony, and number two, that uh, the British were not totally welcome there, but number three, that... Uh, even though we were allies of the British, they still had great respect for the Americans, which they did. And before we got out of there, they, <clears throat> when they, had, they too could see that the war was coming up, those that could speak English would buttonhole us. After the war saw you and me, British. Wow. You and me. <laughs> they didn't really like the British at all then. No, they didn't. The uh, British had been there too long. Yep. And they, uh, they were a little bit I don't know what the word is, but they uh, they were treated like colonists, you know. Yeah. And the, the, it was their land; the British occupied it, so it wasn't. They weren't colonists. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting piece of history here, and it might parallel some of the uh, theaters that that Nick and, and Oscar were a part of. So they we the Americans go into the China Burma India theater, and it's a bit of a powder keg. Because you had the British there fighting the Japanese, the Japanese are fighting everyone, and India, who has soldiers that are part of the colony, and the long-lived colony for British are there, and then you had Burma, which was an English colony and was recently gained independence, and none of these, none of these colonies like the Brits, the Indians from India, they did not want to be under British rule. The the Burma government did not. And here you have this beautiful opportunity, this disruptor, this Japanese force coming in, promising independence and freedom and a a more properly aligned with Asian people. So, So for the first few years of the war, this independent Burmese government was actually aligning themselves with the Japanese. And what the British did is they had a coup. They're like, yeah, we gave your independence sort of. And they went in there and they overthrew that ruler who was cozying up to the Japanese. But they, the, the British could not get a strong enough – they couldn't just go and occupy Burma because a lot of it was being occupied by the Japanese and they didn't have the forces to do it. But what happened is the Japanese shot themselves in the foot. They mistreated the people in this region so horribly that the uh, – that the, the the Burma government and what was left of that area not occupied by the Japanese and India realized, you know what, the Brits are the lesser of two evils. And so the agreement was we're going to help the Brits, 
until the war is over, and then it's back on. And that little segment there where one of the individuals from Burma was buttonholing me and, you know, touching him in the chest and saying, after the war, you and me, America had a unique role at this time as being this huge superpower that a lot of people liked. They saw them as being a better alternative to what was going on there locally. And after World War II, the United States would leverage this goodwill. And there's no country in the world that has the number of bases in the footprint. So for all the negative things you see on CNN or Fox News or whatever internationally, at the end of the day, you know, America may not be perfect, but we've, we've, all, we've been the lesser of the two evils very often throughout the course of human history. And we've got these longstanding relations with people all around the world because of what we did in World War II. So the question I have uh, for Nick and Oscar is this one. You guys deployed overseas. It was a bit of powder keg over there. I mean, what was your experience culturally with the people there? How did they respond to you when you were overseas? What was it like to be an American in the Middle East at this time? Yeah. So, I mean, as a fighter pilot, we don't get to interact with, you know, a, a a whole lot. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when we go through, we'll, we'll go through LUD, uh, which is where Nick was, and we'll go through their local customs and we, we, you know, we're, we're kind of nothing to them. I hate to say it that way. <laughs> uh, but you know, we don't really get a whole lot of interaction, uh, when we're in LUD. Once we transition from LUD to Bagram, we don't get any interaction really mm-hmm. with locals. Now we will talk with, uh, folks that do talk with them. And, and sometimes we will work with partner forces uh, this last trip in Afghanistan, we would talk to them quite a bit, actually. And those that are loyal to the cause, if you will, uh, have it's always a positive uh, kind of kind of experience. They're thankful that we're there, as we would be if they were helping us to fight off some type of uh, invasion. So uh, that's that's what I kind of gathered from it. Is we you know face to face, we didn't meet a lot, but we would talk on the radio quite a bit, and it was always you know their English isn't perfect, but uh, it was good enough to get by. Okay. So. So you don't have, it doesn't sound like you have any obvious negative sort of uh, experiences with, with, with the people that you are surrounded by when no, you were deployed. No, I mean, uh, minus the occasional rocket attack, but those, because <laughs> we're, those were our enemies. Uh, so, you know, we, we uh, my first trip, probably worse than the second, although we had some instances in the second. Uh, my first trip to Afghanistan, there, we were we we had a little sign on the board. You know, you go into some offices and they have you know uh, number of days since reportable incident. We would have number of days since last rocket attack. <laughs> and at one point in the trip, we actually changed that from number of days to number of hours. Oh wow! Uh, because we were we were constantly getting uh, what we call IDF or indirect fires, which is just a fancy word for mortars or rockets. It was so, that common. It was, yeah. Now I will say, uh, it you know, Bagram's a big base, so we you know we would get the warning anytime it was anywhere close to like impacting on base, sure. and sometimes it impacted close. One time it impacted, one of them impacted on the flight line, but yeah, it was. Yeah. Did you ever see like any of our equipment or men get injured or wounded from these attacks? Yeah. So, uh, nobody injured, thankfully, uh, that I knew of. (laughs) However, um, it hit some toolboxes over in some of the contractors and and put some holes through some toolboxes and stuff. And we chuckled about it only because, uh, you know, the the guy had been like standing at his toolbox a couple hours before and then he comes back and there's a hole straight through it, you know. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, we, you know, we have some pretty awesome systems that help protect us. You can you can YouTube them. It's not you know, there's nothing super classified about them, uh, but it's called a CRAM. If you've ever heard of that, uh, it's also equipped. Uh, a lot of boats have them too, uh, Navy boats. But it's essentially a uh, the same gun we have in the F-16, so a Gatlin gun attached to a really awesome radar 
that can actually shoot the rockets out of the sky, which is pretty awesome. So if you ever want a, a cool video engineering wise, you can take a look at that. So is the Gatling gun that was used on the A-10 and maybe even the F-16 the same gun that's used in the C-130? Uh, the C-130? The the AC the, no, yeah, it the is. gunship. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is actually the, really. The, it's a, similar to the one we have in the F sixteen. So uh, depends which variant of the AC one thirty. Yeah, the F 16s is a twenty millimeter. It's called an M sixty one, and then the uh, the AC one thirty, the new version, I think, is a twenty five millimeter. So mm-hmm. it's kind of halfway between the two there. But, yeah. and, okay. Which is different from the one in the A ten. Yeah, the okay. A ten is yeah. a thirty millimeter, so it's it's kind of standalone. They, there's not another one like that one. Okay, it's, it's kind of for that plane, which, yeah. as we said yep. before, is really awesome. I mean, yep. Nick, what was your experience when you made it overseas? I mean, what was it? I know they had you locked in a box and doing whatever you're doing in the typing thing, but when you kind of went out and branched out a bit, did you feel uh, any sort of tension or friction, or was it pretty easy going? You know, as far as the, the locals, uh, the local Qataris, uh, for the most part, really, what I've been told is it really just depends on whatever governing group is in mm. power at the time, right? So obviously there's long, there's long standing, uh, deals and, and contracts with, you know, with us offering them, uh, protection and security guarantees. Uh, but when I was there in 2016, I'd probably say the climate was, uh, neutral, uh, more along the lines of peaceful coexistence, uh, between uh, U.S. forces, U.S. and allied forces, uh, and the local Qataris. Um, you know, obviously, us as service members, we had real strict uh, rules, uh, do's and don'ts on what we could do with the locals. Uh, and uh, John kind of alluded to it earlier. You know, whenever you deal with uh, the Qatari police or the Qatari military, you know, uh, sometimes there's, you know, you look them in the eye and sometimes you're not allowed to, depending mm-hmm. on how you hand them certain documents and what hand you hand them those documents in. Wow. A lot of cultural norms that maybe we're not used to here. Um, you know, definitely no pictures with service members and, you know, locals on social media. That'll get you in trouble real quick. Um, so much so to where we have a, a, a certain group uh, on the base that specific job is to be the go-between between the two governments uh, and to kind of quell or calm any kind of potential uprisings between U.S. service members and the locals. But for the most part, I mean, it was very safe. It was very westernized. We could go down to the souks is what we called them. And that was like their downtown village and we could shop and eat and kind of enjoy the culture. So um, I would say, you know, for a seven month deployment, my only ma- major deployment, it was a pretty great experience. So that that's really interesting because we just talked about at the end of World War II, the United States was able to apply soft power with these relationships we built. And it sounds like from what both you guys are saying is there certain protocols the United States has in place to make sure that we don't create a- an incident just because of a cultural faux pas. Right. So that we can, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's encouraging to know as well. I, I just didn't know at what depth the United States military proactively prepared our soldiers and sailors overseas for this. You guys are both nodding. It sounds like you guys kind of were pretty well uh, briefed on that. Okay. We're going to go into the theater now. We're going to start having airplanes attack enemy soldiers on the ground. Let's play the next clip. Well, yeah. well could you describe uh, some typical missions that you were asked to fly during the war? Um, the, uh, there's two typical missions. <clears throat> the, uh, for a close support mission, most of the time, we just used our guns. And what we would do, they would direct us in a direction. The uh, Burmese landscape, you, they can tell you to follow a river, but that was about all we had to follow. So they usually just give us a heading and we'd fly and we'd, uh, we'd know that we could chart on the map in our early room 
what the distance was. So we judge it, and you know, when the, the right number of minutes elapsed, we call in. USS Avengers, two-way radio, just like walkie-talkies, you know. OSS Avengers, oh yeah, you're close, I can see you up there. Give me, you need about another minute, you know, and then we get down, they'd say, you're right overhead now, circle, we'll describe the area. And they would, they would describe that area right down to the last detail of the land that they could see. They were looking through binoculars and they could see the lines that were sporting. And when they'd finally get it described and we'd agree, yeah, we think we got it, they'd ask us for a short machine gun burst to make sure we were in the right spot. Well, often we were, and every now and then we'd be asked to make a correction of a few yards, one way or the other. And then if they asked us to make a correction, we'd give them another squirt at that correction, and then they would start bragging on us. Boy, you got them. You're right exactly where you ought to be. Give them everything you got. <laughs> oh, man, we got so many things to talk about. <laughs> so... First, he, there's two groups on the ground that he supported uh, as an aviator. One was the OSS, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and the other one was Merrill's Marauders, and we're going to talk about that towards the end. But before we talk about these groups that he was coordinating with, I'd like to get the comments from, from Oscar about if you could compare and contrast what we do now versus what he said. And just as a quick recap, basically what he's saying is the OSS was on the ground, he couldn't see what he was shooting at because of the jungle canopy. And they were just kind of dead reckoning him into an area until he got what he had to get. And they said, good job. And he flew away. I mean, what does it look like now? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of similarities, some differences, but there's a lot of similarities. So one of the similarities that you have is, you know, when we were in Afghanistan, you would have a location and you'd have a frequency and sometimes a type of crypto and crypto is how we secure our communications. And you would have those three things and you go, okay, you're going to be there from this time to this time. Hmm. And oh, by the way, here's the call sign of the person that you're dealing with. You know, he talked about an OSS call sign there. So, you know, we, we go out there, you're at that time at that place and you call this person up and they tell you where they are and you find out where the friendlies are, the good guys. And then you find out where the bad guys are. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, sometimes you, he will correct your fires. And this is done by a person on the ground in today's day and age. It's done by what's known as a JTAC, mm -hmm. uh, which is a joint terminal air controller. Back then, it was probably a little bit more of a OJT and uh, OSS most likely did things a little bit differently. So you like, got the job training, OJT? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah on the job. Yeah, it was in, and there wasn't everything today for what we would call close air support or CAS is extremely procedural. Yeah. Everything's procedural. Uh, you know, there's a there's a very specific way that he checks in. He talks about, yeah, we you know we'd call him up, we'd check check in, tell him where we were, they'd tell us where they were. Everything today is very scripted, very procedural. But in essence, it's the same thing. We would do when he's talking about, uh, he would describe the area, and then he would also tell us where he wanted the fires. We do that very same thing today, and it's we actually have a name for it. It's called correlation. I'll be there. So you guys are still doing this visually, in yeah, some absolutely. Degree. Some okay. degree. Sometimes yeah. we do it uh, visually, and that that piece is called correlation. And what the correlation means is that we're correlating what the ground guy sees, the JTAC, and what I see as the fighter to make sure that we are. 100% positive that is the target. Is the JTAC also like a fighter pilot? or is No, he, okay. well, he can be. Yeah. Um, he, he can be. There, there are some guys that have gone that way, but typically JTACs are from a community. Uh, JTAC is a certification. Okay. Uh, and then a TACP is a tactical air control party. And typically speaking, how that works as an Air Force career is that individual will be part of a tactical air control party and they will be attached to some type of Army Marine or uh, Navy 
uh, ground force. And then that way they, they speak both ground force and aviation so that they can be the link between the pilot, the fighter pilot, and the ground force commander. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So. so did you ever have an instance like he spoke of where your fires were effective enough that they gave you feedback? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Every time you employ in combat. How does that make you feel? Awesome. Yeah. I mean that, you know, it's instant feedback, uh, you know, and, and if, and if you do miss, then they're going to tell you how to correct, you know, they'll be like, Hey, uh, shift fires 50 meters North or shift fire, you know, whatever. Uh, and you know, in Afghanistan and in, uh, in, in Iraq, I've never, was never, uh, served in Iraq, but in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, we have other tools that we can use too. today. We have some cool stuff with like lasers and that kind of stuff that we can help get our eyes talked down to the right location. But the best sensor you have in the airplane is the canopy. Just look outside. <laughs> right. And typically, uh, a good JTAC will use what we call funneling features. So he'll be like, hey, you know, call, call contact, we call it, or call visual that you see the four-way intersection with a two-story building in the northeast corner. Yep, I'm contact. Uh, building looks like it's oriented north-south. Yep, A-firm. On the north side of that building, there's two, should see two individuals. Yep, that those two individuals are your target or whatever it is. Yeah, and that's that's how we're doing this. So, <laughs> so okay, well, let's talk about that section. So, I mean, <clears throat> I have to assume there's a significant difference in the degree of precision on how he laid down 850 cals in a canopy mm-hmm. being guided by radio and what you can do without giving any way any state secrets. Sure. I mean, um, you know, what, what sort of um, level of precision can you guys uh, routinely do without any sort of special package or training? Yeah, so, I mean, if you're to the point where you're deployed in Afghanistan, I would say you're pretty proficient. You have a lot of specialized training. However, I will also say that some of it's not that much different. Having strafed in combat, you know, with strafing meaning using the 20-millimeter gun to shoot at the ground. You did that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so having having done that, yeah, it's it's very much the same. Uh, you know, very much the same to to compare what he did in the P forty seven to to what we did in the F sixteen in Afghanistan in both eighteen and twenty when I was there. So if he was sitting across the table from you right here and you guys had a beer, you guys could talk turkey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are cut from the same cloth, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, guy, single engine or single seat, I should say. Uh, fighter pilots are are much the same. Uh, across generations. I think so too. Before I get in the OSS piece, uh, Nick, did you have anything you wanted to add or Ryan? No, I'm good. Okay. So I got this document from the National Park Service of all places about the OSS, which for those who may not know, was the precursor to the CIA. What in the hell is the precursor to the CIA doing in Burma? Right, so we're, let's let's unpack this a bit because there's some amazing things. When in the war? Yes, I mean, what the I I have a whole new respect for these guys who I thought were just playing, you know, spy decoder ring, and it turns out that what they did was amazing. So, I'll just read from this directly, and it reads: Although the most publicized achievements of the OSS occurred in Europe and North Africa. William J. Donovan's organization, he was the person who started the OSS and ultimately the CIA, his organization all contri- also contributed to the war against Japan in the Far East. In fact, and this is I did not know, that contribution was mainly in the China-Burma-India theater, which American veterans of the CB- CBI often call the Forgotten War in World War II. And I would, you know, I would let my listeners know that for as much as I read and enjoy history, uh, until we interviewed these people and started sharing their podcasts, I didn't know much about the CBI. Quite frankly, yeah. it is the forgotten, the forgotten theater. So the the OSS group that operated with Ken 
in this theater, the people that were talking to him that we just heard the clip of was called Detachment 101, right? That's what they do, I guess. And so a brief summary of what they were faced with is that the dark days of early 1942, as I mentioned earlier, as the Japanese drove back allies everywhere to the border of India, actually, Donovan sought out Vinegar Joe Stilwell, who was assigned by Roosevelt to be the commanding general for the China-Burma-Indian Theater. And he called him Vinegar Joe because he didn't suffer fools or stupidity, and he was very coarse and direct in the way he communicated with people. <clears throat> so at any rate, they sought out Stilwell about a role in the OSS in the Far East, and the result was OSS Detachment 101, the first composite SOSI group. I have no idea what that means. Special Operations something, something group which ultimately proved to be one of the greatest successes of Donovan's organization. Out of all the places they operated all over the world in every theater, the one in Burma, the one that you just heard Ken talk about supporting, was the one that was most successful. In activities in Japanese-occupied Burma between 1942 and 1945, resembled perhaps more than those of any other OSS detachment, the mission and capability of modern special forces of the U.S. Army. It showed the way. It is often cited as the first unit in U.S. military history created specifically for conducting unconventional warfare operations behind enemy lines. So in 1942, April 1942, um, there was uh, a major who would later become Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Carl Eifler. And, um, and two dozen men were the start of Detachment 101. So a very, a very small group of people. And the original objective of Detachment 101 had been to conduct intelligence and paramilitary operations in China. But when Stilwell flew down from Chiang Kai-shek's, who was the nationalist leader, who had a communist counterpart who were fighting each other in China, so Chiang Kai-shek would ultimately end up in Taiwan after the war, and that's why the United States and Taiwan still have close relationships, and we don't have close relationships with China because they were the communists, again, you know, actions have consequences. But at any rate, um, so initially this detachment was supposed to go to China. But um, after a meeting that Stilwell had with Chiang Kai-shek, who he didn't get along with, by the way, uh, he directed Eifler, the leader of Detachment 101, to set up a base in northern India in the Burma theater where they were operating. And what, he, what Eifler did is he set up the base in northern India. He learned how to operate in the jungle, penetrate Japanese-occupied Burma, Stillwell still had minimal uh, resources needed, and he needed help preparing the campaign to retake the Burma Road. That's what this was all about, which was, as I said earlier, the main overland supply route uh, through the mountains of China. Meanwhile, uh, supplies were being airlifted from Assan, India, to Kunming. That's the that's the uh, the hump. That's the uh, airlift that we did with the 10th Air Force, and it was a hump, as it was called. But the Japanese were tacking our transport planes in a place called Michinaw, which if you look at the pop, it looks like Mayat Kaina, but it's Michinaw in northern Burma. So what, what Detachment 101 was tasked to do ultimately was to prepare the way for a military assault to go behind the enemy lines, blow up the road and railroad bridges that enable the Japanese to supply Michinaw until we could get a proper military force, which would end up being Merrill's Marauders, to retake that area. We needed that Japanese base because they were harassing the supply lines. So how did they do this? You've got one guy who's an ex-cop, Eifler, and 12 men. So 
with agents being infiltrated over thousands of square miles of mountain of mountainous jungles, the detachment faced a problem of establishing a communications network. That's the first thing they needed to know how to do was to communicate. And fortunately for them, they had a couple of guys, a guy named Donald Ng and Alan Richter, who solved the problem. What they did is these two guys designed a radio from scratch. It was a prototype that they designed in 1942, December. It weighed 50 pounds, including the battery and carrying case, and the transmitter was a straightforward crystal oscillator and amplifier, whatever that means, usually a pair of six, uh, six six-volt uh, radio tubes. And depending on what they had on hand, the receiver had uh, was a three-tube regenerative design using assorted materials. Okay, all this means to say is they created their own damn radio, from scratch, there was nothing on the shelf that they could get. In this radio that they used, the very same type that Ken would have heard the OSS direct where he had to direct his fires from, would ultimately come what they called it the Burma radio. It could transmit 1,500 miles. Now, you guys are modern military people. You know that even today that's a long ways. Yeah, it would have to be probably uh, uh, HF would be where I would think that would lie. Uh, and the way that works, just as a, in, in quick layman's terms, is it, it actually bounces off the Earth's atmosphere. And we still use HF today, uh. not in the F-16, but uh, aircraft do uh, do use that. A lot of transport category aircraft use HF. Yeah. Wow. And, and, it, and it will go about that far. Yeah. So some of these ham operators, are they using that? Yeah, they so can. So it's shortwave yep. sort of stuff? Yeah, shortwave. Yeah, absolutely. Some of our higher frequency stuff that we use, the very high and ultra high, those are limited to line of sight so literally you are limited by the fact that the earth is round yeah. sorry flat earthers there that's why the radio doesn't work uh beyond i'm line, leaving beyond what's called line of sight yeah. yeah i just don't think he understands this <laughs> <laughs> so one of the first things they do is they literally create their own radio it would become the forerunner of what the cia would call their suitcase radio which they would use for all the way in the 50s during the Cold War until better radios became available. So basically, the OSS teams also served the 10th Air Force. That's the Air Force that was providing the supplies. The 10th Air Force was not a combat outfit. It was designed to provide supplies to China. But the OSS teams served the 10th Air Force by rescuing downed aviators and providing detailed locations of targets that the Japanese had carefully hidden in the jungle, key bridges that were built just under the river surfaces so they couldn't be seen from the air. These people could walk up onto them. They could look for munitions dumps and petroleum depots covered by camouflage netting or the jungle canopy and underground bunkers and aircraft hangars. And by the end of 1943, by the end of 1943, 80% of the 10th Air Force targets in the area resulted from OSS information. From boots on the ground, from having wow. human beings there, 80%. And they were able to, to kind of soften it. Now, they, they ended up getting some help. This 12-man detachment would grow into a force of 10,000 people from a guerrilla army. And the primary recruits for this guerrilla army were called the Kachins. They were um, in northern Burba. They were a fiercely proud and able mountain people. They despise the Japanese invaders. And these people, let's hope we never go to war with them. Let's hope they don't breed and have millions of people and start their own country. Listen to this. They were small, wiry tribesmen who were natural hunters. Kachin served as guides, spies, warriors. They could follow invisible tracks through the jungle across towering mountains. 
They had their own aggressive way of fighting the Japanese. And when Stilwell expressed skepticism to one Kachin tribal leader about how many Japanese he had killed, the Kachin tribal leader emptied a bamboo tube he carried and outspilled a pile of human ears. (laughs) And he told Stilwell, quote, count them and divide by two. Whoa. That's what they did. And to reinforce this, that what this goes on about someone witnessed one of these attacks, the Kachin showed the Americans how to survive in the jungle, how to surprise and kill the enemy there. They constructed homemade booby traps with trip wires and crossbows. And in fact, they also used something, used this dagger sharp pointed bamboo sticks that were several feet long called panji. Like bungee sticks, panji sticks, the same things that our forces had to endure in Vietnam. Uh, well, apparently these guys were the, were the progenitors of that, which they implanted an angle in the jungle undergrowth on either side of the trail where they planned an ambush. And when the Kachins, using submachine guns supplied by the Americans, attacked the front and rear of the column, the Japanese and the soldiers would dive for cover and land on these pointed sticks in the trail. And here's one more thing I want to add before we move on from the OSS, because these Kachin tribesmen were really important. So there was this OSSer named Lieutenant John Hooker, and he had a chance to participate in one of these uh, ambushes. And, and he said the action was quick. He says, as the Kachins prepared an ambush, Hooker watched them cut and plant panji sticks along the side. Then Kachin teams with British Bren Bren submachine guns hid themselves at each end of a 200-yard stretch of trail. The Japanese platoon-sized force of about 50 men entered the site, and in five minutes they were all dead, all of them. The advance guard of the element was picked off by Kachin snipers a half mile south of the ambush, and when the smoke cleared, I had emptied both, this guy, my 20-round magazines and my gun. The Kachin raiders went among the dead, clipping off ears. Each man had a bamboo tube on a cord slung around his neck where he stored his trophies. So, in summary, the OSS was a small group. They were the precursors to the special forces that we use to this day as a force multiplier. And they provided a level of intelligence in the ground to direct aim fire from a fighter jet, a fighter uh, uh, airplane, in this case a P-47, uh, to great effect. And I guess the question I have for you guys, do you have any comments on what I just said? And can you comment on the, 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 um, uh, on, on any of the individuals, our allies, when you were in the service that helped us? Did you see this level of support with, with anyone that, that we served with overseas? Yeah. Yeah, did you have any guys that cut ears off? We didn't have any guys that cut ears off that, that I know of. Um, but I do know that you know there, there were several times. I was a night guy the whole time I was in Afghanistan. I loved working at night. And one of the organizations that we worked with was actually ANSOF. And ANSOF is Afghani Special Forces. Uh, I don't know that they were quite as brutal, but they're also individuals that are defending their homeland. And they're uh, incredibly proud, incredibly uh, motivated, obviously, at the time that we were there. So working with those individuals, it was, it was bringing back some memories when you mm-hmm. talk about individuals that are defending their homeland and we're working alongside them to get the, you know, get the invaders out, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and providing intelligence, providing, you know, uh, recce, what we would call recce or uh, reconnaissance. Yeah, absolutely. Ansoff, it brings the Ansoff to mind. Yeah, yeah. When we talk about that. I almost think that in order, I mean, when we talk about, you know, supporting ground troops with aircraft, I think, I I know a lot of people, the uninitiated, think about the aircraft, they think about the pilot, but if you don't have that other element on the ground, 
collecting intel and directing it. You're just a guy blowing shit up. That's right. Right? That's right. We're good at that. Yeah, we, yeah, we could do that for days, right? We could do that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just have to know what to blow up. Exactly. Yeah. This concludes episode three of the four-part Ken Thomas series. Please join us for the final episode in this series where Ken talks about the living conditions in the theater and the politics behind General Stilwell's forming of Merrill's Marauders. Thank you.